exciting <laughs> <laughs> look it's it's thanksgiving week yeah. uh today actually when you when this is coming to you in your ear holes is actually thanksgiving i'm excited yeah so uh who are you oh right before i talk about how i'm excited my name is amelia <laughs> uh i'm one of your co-hosts of the weirdest thing podcast and i am scott and i'm your other co-host and uh hey yo. yeah so uh why are you excited just because of the week yeah I don't the know. holiday season yeah it feels a little bit like uh this is the first thanksgiving in about 12 years that i am not going into or in the midst of a tech week oh yeah show yeah that's gotta be <laughs> yeah because yeah, even last year you guys were doing uh, ugly sweater reviews so yeah we were doing it virtually and so i don't know what it's like to not be like ah! uh, <laughs> during this week because yeah. we would uh usually uh, i mean i tried to give people as much of the week off and they always had um right. thanksgiving and friday i mean at the very least i tried to give them thanksgiving friday saturday and sunday off Mm -hmm. but sometimes it was just like like the actors the non-company actors have off but like we've got to be here building a set or whatever and this is just the first time when i don't have anything so (laughs) nice that's a nice feeling this is the first uh thanksgiving where i'm actually cooking for my parents rather than the way around wait did you say who you are uh yeah yeah, I'm Scotty. I'm Scotty mm. Miles. <laughs> okay, my bad. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm I'm cooking for my parents this week because they're coming down. It's only the three of us uh, this year, so they're coming down to Albuquerque, and we were like, eh, we don't really care about Thanksgiving food because I would not trust myself to do a Thanksgiving meal. So we're just gonna like you know, do like a rib roast in the air fryer and you know nice. that kind of thing. Yeah, nice. But we yeah. Yeah, it's just uh, me and my folks. So we, and we're not big turkey people, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm being completely honest. Uh, so we're just going to do a nice roast chicken. Nice. Yeah. I yeah. Uh, I mean, I love, like, I understand all the reasons why Thanksgiving is a problematic holiday. Yeah. And we'll probably be talking about that some today, I think. Um, uh-huh. But uh, I got to say, like, I love all the food and all the fixings for Thanksgiving. I- That's fantastic. Cause I was actually, uh, if you're okay to like lead in from this, I was going to start with asking you what your favorite Thanksgiving food is. My, well, I do love the Turkey. I do love the okay. gravy. The problem is I'm doing my like low carb thing right now. Right. So like basically the Turkey would be the only thing I could eat, <laughs> but like the Turkey with the gravy, my dad mm. makes amazing gravy. Ugh. Um, and amazing stuffing. And then I'm yes. a big fan of sweet potato casserole. Like that's, interesting. That's my that's my jam. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I my mom makes a stuffing that she got because the, like the only reason I believe that we celebrate Thanksgiving is is was basically to like assimilate because Thanksgiving yeah. doesn't exist. 
I right. don't believe in South America. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so, a very American holiday. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, so my mom makes this stuffing that I think is like called Pennsylvania Dutch stuffing. Mm. And it's fantastic. Just so good. And then she also makes a broccoli cheddar casserole that is amazing. But like, that's, that's really the stuff that I'm, that I, we'll we'll do like, we'll do like a green bean casserole. Then my dad, he cooks the stuffing in the Turkey, which I know like, we'll get to that. Don't do that. You're going to die from all the diseases, but my dad, we've never died from it. So that's good. He knows what he's doing. But That's yeah, good. but like uh, I tried to do a keto Thanksgiving a couple of years ago yeah. with like my keto substitute foods and it was terrible. So I was like, well, either I just need to go off of the diet for the holiday or luckily my parents were like, meh, we don't really feel like doing the whole thing. The whole, the <laughs> so, whole shebang. Yeah, we were going to, they were coming down and we were going to just try and go to like eat at some restaurant That's uh, tough. but then everything was booked up so we're like oh well, i've yeah. got the air fryer we'll, we'll cook something so. yeah 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 fantastic well the reason i asked you that is because i'm gonna talk about where our thanksgiving menu came from today. cool excited uh yeah, so sources for this are Smithsonian Magazine, Britannica, History.com, The Washington Post, Mental Floss, Throomers.com, Oceanspray.com, <laughs> uh, The Food Network, Delish, and a teeny little bit of Wikipedia. Cool. Okay, so let's, you know, you touched on this a little bit, but let's like go ahead and talk about the myth of the first Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, let's just go ahead and clear it up right at the top. So the first Thanksgiving, as it was taught to us in grade school, was, of course, unsurprisingly, an advertising strategy. Yeah, like the idea of this like happy dinner and blah, blah, blah. We're going to come back to that advertising strategy in a sec. So put a pin in that. Okay. The actual meal was between the pilgrims and the Wampanoag people in 16... 16- I saw a couple of sources that said 1619. I believe everything else says 1621. Okay. So somewhere in that somewhere in that time frame, please don't, please don't write me. I'm in a very (laughs) fragile place right now. Don't write me and yell at me. Don't, don't (laughs) cancel Amelia over dates. (laughs) Yes, please. Um, Okay. So that original Thanksgiving was not the like neighborly potluck that we, you know, sort of like learned about in grade school, Mm -hmm. but rather a shrewd move by Osama Quinn, uh, who was the, uh, I believe the chief of the Wampanoag to create an alliance with the pilgrims. Mm -hmm. This was not because he was like an innately friendly dude, but rather because he wanted to try to stop the decimation of his people by disease and he hoped that the English could like maybe help fend off rivals. Mm-hmm. Only one reference to the meal of think that that original Thanksgiving exists, and it's uh, it exists in a letter written by Plymouth colonist Edward Winslow. Let me also say here that I'm giving you like a cliff notes <laughs> yeah. version of this because it is impossible to talk about this without talking about the colonization of the area of what would become New England mm-hmm. and the relationships between Europeans and the indigenous people, which were often fraught. Like there, So please understand that this is in no way a deep dive into right. this topic. I just want to give some context mm-hmm. um, because it'll matter in a little bit. So in the nutty 
earliest of nutshells, Native Americans existed in what is now known as the United States well before pilgrims set their buckled mm-hmm. shoe feet on the shores of uh, Plymouth. That also seems to be a little bit of a thing. Like it's sort of like nothing existed here. And then like Native Americans sprouted like mushrooms. And it's like, yeah. no, bitch, they were here. Yeah. Like, like doing their thing. 50,000 years or something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Like a long ass time. The Mayflower was not the first contact with the Wampanoag people. The mm-hmm. Wampanoags had a century of contact with Europeans that was bloody, involved slave raiding, mm-hmm. you know, all that good stuff. And at least two of the Wampanoags who like attended this Thanksgiving dinner spoke English and had actually traveled to Europe and back. Oh, wow. Okay. So this was not like a whole, like, who are you? Well, we're, you know, like, right. There was at least some that it was like, yeah, no, we're aware of each other. Right. That tenuous relationship of that Thanksgiving, the pilgrims, the Wampanoags would mm-hmm. devolve into King Philip's War, the decimation and forced relocation of Native people off their ancestral lands, the Indians Appropriation Act, which created the Indian Reservation System, so mm-hmm. on, so right. forth. Like it, you know, it just went downhill from right. there. Again, I strongly encourage anyone to dig into the history of Native American people in this country, especially, uh, not especially, but, you know, if your only idea of them is sort of like what you were taught in grade school and the like landing on Plymouth Rock and that kind of a thing, like dig Mm -hmm. into it, but it is a vast topic. My reason for that is I don't think that it is really possible to understand this country without understanding the history and treatment of the indigenous people who inhabited this land. That meal happens in either 1619 or 1621. And it's it's kind of like an autumn harvest celebration. Right. Um, this was not something that was new to the indigenous people on this continent. It was also not something that was new to Europeans. Mm. Like everybody has a thing of like, okay, we've like harvested everything. And now we're like settling down and the seasons are changing and there's an equinox and like, let's party Yeah. before, you know, we have to all go indoors for the next few months. After that first Thanksgiving, the English colonists celebrated Thanksgiving, but it was more of a somber affair. It was like fasting and praying. Mm-hmm. And well, like yeah. Cause like that. pilgrims and Puritans, they were like yeah. super fun group. Yeah. They were a blast. Pilgrims <laughs> were a blast. Yeah. Uh, so it was that kind of a deal. Uh, around 1769, a few pilgrim descendants. <laughs> mm, okay. A few pilgrim descendants were like, you know what? We really feel like people are starting to forget that our families basically like started America. Mm-hmm. Um, like legit, they really felt that their quote cultural authority was slipping away mm-hmm. as New England became less relevant in the colonies and the early republic, and they wanted to boost tourism. Uh-huh. So that's what I was saying. Like <laughs> it was an advertising campaign. Yeah, yeah. it was like 100 percent a marketing ploy. Mm-hmm. So these descendants started to plant the idea that the pilgrims were like the I'm going to say the fathers of America, but I don't mean like the founding fathers. I mean, like America exists. It like it didn't exist before the pilgrims. We came from their loins is what you're saying. Yeah. And that it like and that like it literally was like nothing before the Mm -hmm. pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock, which, again, is not 50,000 years of people. Yeah, it's not. 
Yeah. It's not true, guys. It's not true. So this gets cemented into American mythology through a teeny tiny footnote in a publication by the Reverend Alexander Young that said this was the first Thanksgiving, the great festival of New England. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so it was like off to the races. Yeah. Um, Alexander Hamilton once declared no citizen of the U.S. shall refrain from Turkey on Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> He hath decreed. Yes. Yeah. Um, So Thanksgiving hangs out as this sort of like regional New England festival for about a century until the late 1800s. Okay. And that is when white Protestants start getting real twitchy about all of the Jews, Italians, and Chinese coming into the U.S. Mm -hmm. Again, they want to assert cultural authority, which like... I'm not trying to be a shit, but like, what the fuck does that even mean? What is white Protestant culture? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a like, Jew. What so is I'm, it? You're looking at me like I'm supposed to have the answer. <laughs> but like, what is it? But like, I, I mean, it's like, you can name some things from other cultures that you're like, yeah, that is definitively part of that culture. We know that soul food is a creation of the black community and it comes from the food that the enslaved people were making, mm-hmm. you know, for like, we understand that we understand things that are, can any, can someone name something that is white Protestant culture? I mean, I don't know, bread pudding, maybe. I don't even think bread. Pu- <laughs> I'm going to look up. That's going to be the next yeah. episode is where does bread pudding come from? <laughs> I don't even think it's that. Yeah. So, Okay. Again, I'm not trying to throw shade, but these are also people that are getting twitchy about immigrants coming to the U.S. uh, Yeah, I was going to say, I'm real glad that this twitchiness seems to be something we've all collectively gotten past. Yeah, and now we live in a free (laughs) and and accepting society. Utopia, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) precisely okay so anyway they want to assert their like cultural dominance essentially over these immigrants and they figure that trotting out this myth of the pilgrims and the native americans inviting them to take over the land which is also part of the myth right that Mm -hmm. the native americans were like well we certainly can't be trusted to shepherd this land and you are good white people so why don't you you do it yes good grief this is so frustrating okay so so basically these uh, white Protestant folks are like, see, like we belong here because the people who <laughs> because the people who were here originally gave mm-hmm. it to us and not you immigrants, right. but us, even yeah. though we were also immigrants. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> So they're spreading this idea that like, quote unquote, bloodless colonialism is the origin of the U.S., which mm-hmm. bloodless colonialism doesn't exist. Yeah. And Americans loved feeling warm and fuzzy about their colonial past with like none of the icky bad feelings about the true like dark history of it. Mm-hmm. Like it was all very like, oh, we get to feel great about the fact of like how we came here and what we did to the people who were originally on this land and all of this mm-hmm. stuff because we've created this nice little story that like we had a meal together and then they were like, goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> this land is yours now. Right. Okay. So that is the in a nutshell history of the holiday. Again, I'm super glossing over a lot of the details because colonization of this country and the treatment of its indigenous people as like a global subject is too big for one episode of this podcast. 
it's pretty huge. <laughs> uh, do you think we'll ever get around to doing any of the episodes that were like, it's too big of a topic for one episode? I mean, we're going to have to decide to do the like, what is it? The What's that show with what's her name? <laughs> That's not at all helpful. <laughs> super, super helpful. Um, Karina something or other. Longworth? Yeah, where she'll do like like a 10 episode series on something. Does she do criminal? No, she does that other show that I don't know. Anyway, but like, are you talking about, you must remember this. You must remember this. That's what I'm thinking of. Okay. I, I, I have no idea who the host is of that. Cause I've never listened to it, but I do know that she'll do like these long epic does, series on things. She does do like a season that covers. Right. Entire- like if we're ever going to like, like we've, this is like off topic but like we've talked about doing like talking about like the origins of nazism and things like that and it's like that is like to do that right you have to do like yeah we can't be multiple episodes we can't be like here's a cliff's notes version of (laughs) even though i just did it with this so i don't know maybe we could i don't know okay at any rate that's your cliff's notes version of the origin of the thanksgiving holiday so let's talk turkey and stuffing and yams and cranberry sauce and potatoes and pumpkin pie. Mm-hmm. Okay. Turkey. Uh, that first meal between the Wampanoag and the pilgrims, the Wampanoag brought deer. Like that is, mm-hmm. uh, that is recorded. And it said that the pilgrims brought wild fowl, which could have been turkeys because they were plentiful in the area at the time. It also sure. could have been ducks or geese. Quail. Yeah, I don't know, Who partridges. Knows? I don't know, whatever the yeah. hell. Turkey didn't become a popular dish to serve for special occasions until the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it was sort of seen as a very like, like we'll make a turkey. It wasn't yeah, something special. Like very proletarian or something. Yeah. And it became popular during the 1800s because one, like I just said, turkeys were everywhere. One estimate says that there were 10 million turkeys in America, which you have to understand is at that time is, you know, not all of them at like is the colonies, I guess at the time of colonization, mm-hmm. but there were 10 million turkeys running around. Yeah which the noise that I can't even <laughs> and two turkeys, unlike cows or chickens had that had other uses on a farm were pretty much only good for eating. Yeah. They can get milk and eggs and stuff from cows and chickens. Not a lot. You can get from Turkey. Except- yeah. Cause we don't do Turkey eggs. I've never thought about that. I, and I don't know that Turkey eggs, like um, they probably you know, taste like ass, but <laughs> <laughs> ever ever the eloquent <laughs> podcast host um no but like the thing is is that you can occasionally find like quail eggs or mm-hmm. i've even been in like certain supermarkets where you can find ostrich eggs and stuff mm-hmm. i don't think i've ever seen a turkey egg no the, i mean they must taste horrid is my God. there's no, there's really? no reason not to market them unless they're terrible so. they're just like no yeah no where was i oh and three, one turkey could like readily feed a family. Right. You know what I mean? There's so much turkey. I've only <laughs> been like, I have I have two older brothers and my parents and my mom would make a turkey for Thanksgiving because that's what you do in America to celebrate Thanksgiving, even mm-hmm. though none of us really like turkey. <laughs> <laughs> and it was always like this turkey that was as big as me. And she was like, you all need to eat it. And we were like, we don't like the turkey. Yeah. Hence why we're just doing a nice roast chicken. Okay. There are folks that think that Charles Dickens is responsible for like turkey equaling Thanksgiving. It actually seems more that a writer named Sarah, I don't know if it's Josepha or Yosefa. 
Hale, who wrote, she wrote Mary Had a Little Lamb, oh, is okay. actually the one that we have to thank for turkey, like equaling Thanksgiving. Oh, okay. In her novel, Northwood, which was published in 1827, she spent an entire chapter talking about the New England Thanksgiving, uh, complete with a roasted turkey placed at the head of the table. Mm, so it was yeah. like, this meal is about the effing turkey. Yeah. Uh, Hale also started campaigning for Thanksgiving to be a national holiday because get this. She thought, again, this is talking about like 1820s, 1830s. She was mm. like, the country is careening towards a civil war. Mm. And if we had this like holiday that was about gratitude and giving thanks and being grateful, like maybe that could unify us as a country. And that worked out super well. It, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Eventually, her campaign did work because Abraham Lincoln declared Thanksgiving a national holiday in 1863, smack dab in the middle of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Like a little, little, too little, too late. But too little, too n- late. N- nice effort, Abe. Yeah. <laughs> also, like, I mean, I get it, mm-hmm. but it's interesting to think with like everything that the Civil War was about to think that, like, hey, guys. What if we took a day and just were grateful for everything that people were going to be like, you know I mean, what? Yeah. I mean, that, that feels like how Congress works now, though. It's like <laughs> we have all these like massive problems, but here, let's just like name a football stadium after somebody and everybody's yeah. fine. Like, yeah. Uh, Winslow, who I mentioned before, didn't mention turkeys in his one letter about that first Thanksgiving, but there was another colonist, William Bradford, who did talk about a great store of wild turkeys around Plymouth that fall. Mm, So he wasn't writing specifically about this meal, but he was like, there was a shit ton of turkeys running around that fall. Just too many turkeys. Too, look, too (laughs) many turkeys. Um, (laughs) I feel like that's a sitcom, yeah. <laughs> but like a pilgrimy sitcom where like at the end, the dad like pulls back the cover wah, like in the wah. opening credit. Yeah. yeah. And there's a turkey in the bed and he's like, oh, you know, yeah. oh man. Yeah. Okay. Too many turkeys. All right. Before you know it, turkeys and pilgrims like become synonymous with Thanksgiving. Of note, the Spanish had already brought turkeys back to Europe from their previous voyages to the new new world. So pilgrims were already like familiar with the bird. They already like, it wasn't like they were like, what are these massive chickens that are roaming around? Like they were like, that's a turkey. We know how to cook it. So cool, turkeys cool, cool. are, this is something I didn't know. They're, turkeys are like indigenous to yep. uh, the North America. Oh, interesting. Yep. Yeah. The, which is going to be a common, it's going to be a common theme throughout this about foods being indigenous to certain places, like a lot of mm-hmm. our Thanksgiving foods. BT dubs, Minnesota is the highest producer of turkeys in the US. So mm-hmm. shout out to Minnesota. I was going to say that tracks. Cranberry sauce. Blech. Okay, we know how Scotty feels about that. Cranberries along with, I thought this was interesting, cranberries along with Concord grapes and blueberries are the only commercially grown fruits that are native to the United States. Hmm, Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't know sense. that. I didn't know that blueberries were also native to here. I did not know that, and I would have. I like you know we grow oranges. We grow like we grow a lot mm-hmm. of stuff here. So yeah. it's interesting that it's like the only stuff that was here was cranberries, Concord grapes, and blueberries. Yeah. So having said that, it makes sense that cranberries showed up uh, on this you know very American holiday menu. The English word is derived from the German word cranberry, cranberry, I don't know how to say that. Um, which refers to say it was like a guttural German. Cranberry. Cranberry. 
I'm going to look that up. I, I apologize <laughs> heartily to any Germans out there listening to this. So, and that actually refers to the sort of like, I heard a couple of things, but I heard that it refers to the crane-like stamens of the plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, indigenous people had long used cranberries for eating, dyeing clothing, medicinal purposes, a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Uh, While Native Americans ate cranberries, they were unsweetened. The first Europeans to come to the U.S. brought sugar cane, but Mm. they couldn't figure out how to make it grow in the new soil for several decades. Mm -hmm. So everybody was just eating unsweetened cranberries. A very simple cranberry sauce made with the berries, sugar, when they figured sugar out, I guess, and Mm -hmm. water dates back to around the mid to late 17th century. By the 18th century, cranberry sauce was a common accompaniment to game meat like turkey, mm-hmm. which I like certain meats with something sweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I like a good chutney and that kind of a thing, but it wasn't something that I grew up with. So I remember like having my first, uh, there was a restaurant out in Placidas and I ordered beef and it had like a tart cherry sauce with it. Mm. And it was amazing. And I was like, oh, this is very interesting. Just a little side note about me. Okay. (laughs) The first published acknowledgement of cranberry sauce comes in a cookbook from one Amelia Simmons, who Mm -hmm. suggested serving roast turkey with either boiled onions and cranberry sauce or pickled mangoes that were imported from India. And Mm. I think it's interesting to think about if pickled, if the pickled mangoes had taken off, yeah. If our traditional Thanksgiving meals would be different, if like if we'd gone in a more like sort of tropical direction, I mean, I'd, I'd be skipping that part of the meal regardless. Because pickled mangoes aren't sweet though. Yeah, but they're still fruit. I Scotty, I don't know how <laughs> you don't have scurvy. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not certain that I don't have scurvy. So. <laughs> Truth is, I could be rampaged with <laughs> ravaged with scurvy at this point uh, i think your teeth would be falling out and stuff yeah. if that was that's probably true okay so originally cranberries are dry harvested which means they're like picked by hand uh which is a long and difficult process but somewhere along the way wet harvesting becomes the technique of choice for making uh which makes for a higher easier yield of the berries but also causes more damage to the delicate fruit so Mm. you know when you see the the stuff about cranberries they're in the bog and the cranberries are sitting there the cranberries aren't grown like that they're grown Mm -hmm. and then the the bog essentially gets filled with water so that they can harvest them yeah they're grown in dry land but like i said this wet harvest damages the fruit so you can't really use wet harvested cranberries to be sold as whole fruit Right. They have to be processed in some way. Mm-hmm. When you see bags of whole cranberries at the store, which I know Scotty probably doesn't look at. Yeah, um, I wouldn't even know what they look like. Really? Yeah. I have only like I figured cranberries just grow on trees in jelly form with like the shape of the can <laughs> molded into it. That's as much as I know about cranberries. The can I, I keep give fucking the you up. Everything every time I say something, you are literally in the middle of drinking. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. 
Okay. They're red berries. I'll show you a picture later. Mm-hmm. So yeah, when you see whole cranberries sold at the market, those berries have been dry harvested. In the mm-hmm. 1930s, a few cranberry growers uh, named Marcus Uran, John Makepeace, and Elizabeth Lee, they get together and they decide to expand their marketing reach by forming one single cranberry growing family. And they formed a little company called Ocean Spray. Mm, okay. I did not know this. Ocean Spray is a cooperative. Hmm. I, and I, yeah, that was yeah, a good idea. And it now includes over 700 grower families across North and South America. Oh, wow. At least 25% of Ocean Spray members are at least fourth generation growers. Wow. And 100% of their cranberries are verified as sustainably grown. Oh. Okay, so well. I think it could be really easy to sit there and be like, oh, ocean spray and that's corporate, but it's, it's a cooperative of cranberry farmers. So I yeah. feel as in terms of that, you can buy ocean spray with confidence. Yeah. Seal yeah. of, uh, where does thing podcast seal of approval? Yeah. Not uh evil, big cranberry coming for you. Look, <laughs> we all know big cranberries coming for us. <laughs> I just see like somebody like the mist, like the Kool Aid Man, but it's a cranberry suit instead I mean, of I, the. I'm imagining like the VHS box cover of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes with a cranberry instead of. Yes, it. amazing. Yeah. So cranberries have a very short season. They can only be harvested from about mid September to mid November, and Marcus Uren developed this like cranberry jelly that he Mm -hmm. sold in tins to prolong the life of the fruit. And that of course became the famous ocean spray cranberry jelly that slides out of the can in a perfect little cranberry log. And makes me gag whenever that makes Scotty gag. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Don't yuck people's yum, Scotty. (laughs) Another factoid, each can of ocean spray cranberry jelly contains 200 cranberries and it became nationally available in 1941. Mm, okay. But that's 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 where cranberry. Oh, good uh, job, ocean spray. Good job, ocean spray. Uh, let's talk stuffing. Mm-hmm. I do have to say, like, I wonder who looked at meat from a dead animal and was like, you know what? Let's stuff it. Let's stuff it with like bread and herbs and seasoning and like call it it a day. Right up the pooper and cook it. Yeah. Well, not even good grief, Scotty. (laughs) Not even that. I mean, plenty of stuff is stuffed without having the cavity. Like you can make stuffed pork chops by like, you know, cutting Mm -hmm. a little slice in there and doing that kind of stuff. That's true. However, having said that, there are mentions of stuffed chicken, rabbit, pigs, and more dating back as far as the second century BC. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's, I think it's a Greek cookbook by some dude that has his like little recipes in it. And he's talking about stuffing all of these things. So it's been around for a bit. I mean, it, whatever magical alchemy happens by shoving it up into the meat like it's it's, fantastic. it's the best it's fantastic um as the name implies stuffing is meant to be cooked inside the carcass and then served as a side dish mm-hmm. uh for early american thanksgivings the go-to stuffing was oyster stuffing hmm. interesting thing about yeah actually sounds kind of good like yeah. i think i could go for that yeah it's it's a meat heavy stuffing right Americans have been stuffing turkeys with oysters for actual centuries. Hmm. Um, And while oysters like today are seen as sort of like a special treat food, they're seen as like kind of fancy and upscale for a really long time. 
oysters were really plentiful Mm -hmm. and they were the most commonly eaten shellfish in the country. Mm, Yeah. People stuffed their turkeys and other birds full of oysters to stretch the turkey. Obviously by that, I mean to like make more of a meal, not like expand (laughs) the bird. (laughs) Oysters were eaten raw from street carts, but they were cooked when they were eaten at home. And here's another Mm -hmm. factoid. Those street carts were usually run by black folks who did the grueling work because it was independent work. Mm, yeah. I am not exactly sure of the time frame here. So I am not sure if we are talking about formerly enslaved people, people who were like in New England and like in the North. And so, so I, I'm I'm I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the context is for how those black folks, usually men were able to have that work, but it Mm -hmm. was, it like, they were able to do it because they could work for themselves. Essentially. No one knows if stuffing showed up on the table at that first Thanksgiving. I was originally like, there's no way it did. But then I was like, but wait, stuffing goes back to like, yeah. Like I wouldn't be surprised. BC. Um, Yeah. Stuffed something up in that game foul or whatever they call it. Yeah. So we're not sure, but we don't know if it was on the, on the menu at that mm-hmm. first Thanksgiving, but many Northeastern cookbooks include recipes for oyster stuffing, stuffing made with like mashed potatoes, stuffing is made with bread and breadcrumbs, mm-hmm. etc. Stuffing in its many forms as a Thanksgiving side dish dates back to around 1836. And we're not sure when it came out out of the bird and into a casserole dish. Yeah. Okay. It is believed that stuffing came out of the bird due to concerns of foodborne illnesses from undercooked poultry and meat juices, Mm -hmm. whether or not to stuff your bird or make your stuffing in a casserole dish remains a hotly debated issue among food folks. Uh, On the West wing, including president Josiah Bartlett. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, What is his whole thing with that? Is he like, you can't, I can't remember if he's pro in the bird. He's pro. I I think he's pro in the bird, but like, you got to get the the whole thing stems around when he calls the butterball butterball hotline hotline because he's got to get the right. One of the best scenes in the series. Yeah. Phil behind. So everyone who's never watched the West Ring are just like, what, what the fuck are they talking about? Look, and I think it's the first, I think it's the Thanksgiving episode in the first season. It's it's one of the second. early it's one of the early seasons. Yeah. Please just just go and YouTube it. Just it's such a great scene, and <laughs> and, and Martin Sheen is such a treasure. As just is uh, Richard, Richard Schiff. Schiff. Right. They're both just just the best. You have an accurate thermometer. Oh yeah. It was presented to me as a gift from the personal sous chef to the king of auto sales in Fargo. Phil Behind, the man can sell a car like, well, like anything. Very good, sir. You have a good Thanksgiving. And you do, too. Thanks a lot. That was excellent. We should do that once a week. Phil Behind. I got to get better at the names. And that scene is is really wonderful. So go and, go and check that out on Thanksgiving Day as you're eating your stuffing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about how to do this. The USDA recommends buying a frozen pre-stuffed turkey Mm -hmm. since these birds undergo inspection to make sure that they are handled properly. But you're supposed to cook a frozen pre-stuffed bird from frozen. Mm -hmm. 
you are not supposed to thaw it. I think, yeah, I think my, my dad always cooks it from frozen. Yeah. Okay. You can't thaw it before it goes, like I said, you can't thaw it before it goes into the oven. The USDA strongly advises against buying a fresh pre-stepped bird since they're handled by multiple people and have a higher chance of being contaminated. Mm-hmm. Should you decide to stuff your own bird, I'm going to give you some tips. Again, these are from the USDA. So like, you know, listen up, prepare the stuffing safely. So if you're using any raw meat, poultry, shellfish, whatever the heck, uh, my mom's stuffing has bacon and sausage in it. So she cooks those first. And that's what the USDA says. Cook those first, add them to the stuffing mix and immediately stuff the bird. Pre-cooked and cooled stuffing should not be used for a turkey. Mm-hmm. It should be eaten separately. Second thing you should know is to stuff your bird loosely. <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, you don't want to pack it in there too tight. This is all real. This is all from the website. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. So you like, if you pack it in there, you increase the chances of lingering bacteria not being killed during the cooking process. Right. That makes sense. So give your stuffing some room to breathe, cook that bird immediately, like stuff it and throw it into the fucking oven. Do not let it sit out at room temperature. Mm-hmm. Use an oven that is no less than 325 degrees and cook your bird to an internal temperature of no less than 165 degrees. Mm-hmm. And you check that by sticking a meat thermometer into the innermost part of the thigh, the wing and the thickest part of the breast. Mm-hmm. Then it says that you should let the fully cooked bird stand for 20 minutes before before carving and you have to refrigerate any leftovers within two hours. Mm -hmm. The USDA also suggests that you carve the turkey and store it in containers rather than just sticking the whole bird in the fridge. Mm. Here's the thing. If you have not been doing this for the entire time that you have been (laughs) making Thanksgiving dinners and no one has gone to the hospital, just keep doing what you're doing. You're fine. Yeah, You're fine. You're fine. You know what I mean? Like we don't need to worry about it. It's all okay. Nobody's died. I think the big thing is get that internal temperature right. And not to stuff it too tight. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we'll never stop laughing with that. Um, I tried, I just sidebar, um, when I tried my keto Thanksgiving a Mm -hmm. couple years ago, I tried to do um, stuffing that I made out of pork rind dust, Uh like crumbled pork rinds instead of breadcrumbs. And um, it wasn't good. Not really. Would not recommend it. No. Oh, that's too bad. No. I, man, my mom's stuffing. I would try this oyster stuffing at some point. Yeah. I'm interested. I'm, here's the thing. I'm interested in it, but I don't like cooked oysters. Mm -hmm. I think they have a weird mouth feel. Mm -hmm. Um. That's all I'm going to say about that. Final stuffing factoid. Stuffing is called dressing in the South and is generally cornbread based. Mm-hmm. And there are strong opinions about this. Oh, yeah. my grandfather had strong opinions about it mm-hmm. from my memory because he's Oklahoma. So he had a and family from Tennessee. So, yep. I think he had that in him. Don't call it stuffing. Call mm. it dressing. Yeah. Uh, and then call out your racist uncles. Okay. <laughs> Sweet potato casserole slash candied yams. Mm-hmm. Okay. First thing is first, as far as this dish goes, the United States and the rest of the world would not have potatoes of any kind 
were it not for my people. Mm-hmm. Sweet potatoes come from Central and South America, and potatoes originated in the Andean region of South America, specifically Peru and Bolivia. Mm-hmm. I remember so, you having a conversation with you. You got <laughs> real heated about that a couple years ago. <laughs> I just... You know, we have to be proud. We have to have pride uh, in mm-hmm. the things that we come from. And I'm just saying, I think a lot of people think that potatoes are a white people food and they are not a white people food. They are an indigenous food. So mm-hmm. put some respect on yeah. that potato. Um, <laughs> Cristoforo Colombo, more commonly known as Christopher Columbus, which is a massive pet peeve of mine, brought mm-hmm. sweet potatoes back to Spain in the late 15th century. And since sugar was a luxury, Europeans were like, what the fuck is this dish that is sweet on its own? Yeah. Like this is an amazing vegetable. Mm-hmm. From Spain, sweet potatoes were brought back to America where they found their like humid, happy place in the South. Mm-hmm. Enslaved Africans saw the sweet potato and its similarities to the yams native to their homelands and started cooking. Um, so sweet that, potatoes and yams are different things. They not. are different things. I never knew that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, you know, another name for it. They are technically different things, but mm-hmm. very similar. Yeah. Uh, is my understanding of it. According to Frederick Opie, PhD and professor of history and society at Babson College in Boston, quote, the tropical region of Nigeria, the Ivory Coast and West Africa is called the Yam Belt. When Africans came to the new world as enslaved people, they substituted sweet potatoes for yams. Mm. The Southern classic dish of sweet potato pudding became a popular side dish. And by the end of the Civil War, the dish had migrated north. Mm-hmm. Sweet potato pie is mentioned in an 1887 issue of, um, I don't know if it's Goaty or Gaudy's Lady Book. It was a Philadelphia women's magazine edited by our pal, Sarah Josepha Hale, who I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. She was- She just had her fingers in all of this. Yeah. And she was like, let's fucking Thanksgiving- she was a Thanksgiving propagandist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was really, really pushing for this thing to happen. Candied sweet potatoes are included in the first edition of the Boston Cooking School Cookbook, which came out in 1896. Uh, marshmallows, which were invented by the French by whipping egg whites and sugar with sap from the roots of Althea officinalis, hmm. it's a marshmallow plant. Marshmallows were ridiculously expensive until the substitute of gelatin for the plant extract allowed mass production. Oh, okay. Yeah. So before that, they were using this like sap and they were full of sugar. I want to try those kind of marshmallows. Those are probably amazing. uh, Like, are they or or would we be like, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Just when I was in France, everything was better in France food wise. I mean than anything you could have here. So this is true. So maybe they'd be incredible. Yeah, Yeah. who knows? In 1917, a company called Angelus Marshmallows put out a little book of recipes that used marshmallows. And suddenly we were topping a vegetable with frothy white puffs, which honestly, like if you think about it, Mm -hmm. is weird. It's weird, but also genius. I mean delicious. Yeah. You know, but it is weird that somebody was like, you know what that vegetable needs? Marshmallows. (laughs) (laughs) Candied sweet potatoes really took off during the depression because at this point, the ingredients were all cheap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was like, and I'm sure a little bit like I was saying with the chocolate chip cookie in the, in my food origins, my accidental food story, like it probably felt a little decadent. 
Mm-hmm. Like this yeah. very sweet, sweet potato with the marshmallows and everything like, or, or, or comforting, you know what I mean? Yeah. This dish is also hotly debated amongst culinary folks who either see it as a staple of Thanksgiving or a too sweet sullying of an already sweet tuber that can stand on its own. Hmm. Interesting. Well, when we did, uh, me and a bunch of friends in LA years ago, probably mm-hmm. 10 years ago, did our own like Thanksgiving. Each of us brought a dish and I was like, well, I'll bring the sweet potato casserole. And yeah. I was shocked that no one had ever seen that before. What? Like, well, cause I what? did sweet potatoes, cinnamon, mm-hmm. sh- like brown sugar mm-hmm. with some cinnamon marshmallows. Like I did the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And everyone there, like they had only ever had, they'd had sweet potatoes with Thanksgiving, but it was just cooked sweet potatoes. Like they oh, never no. had the actual casserole. No. And so people I... are just like, what the fuck is this? And yeah. like, we're almost like mad about it and then tried it and were converted. <laughs> yeah. My mom used to make a sweet potato that was like the canned sweet potatoes, mm-hmm. which may also have been advertised as yams or maybe were yams. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And she would like, they were like cooked in orange juice and a couple of other with like mixed with like mm-hmm. some spices yeah, and I've stuff. Seen, and then I've, I've seen that. In the would get topped with the marshmallows. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it wasn't until I was out in Virginia that I had the sweet potato casserole that had the crumble topping of like brown sugar, butter, cinnamon. I uh, didn't realize. Yeah, I didn't realize how Southern apparently that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but even my Southern friend who was at this Thanksgiving, she was like flummoxed by it. So Revoke her Southern card. <laughs> yeah. Okay, last one, pumpkin pie. Which is also one of my favorites. Okay, pumpkins have been traced back to Central America around 5,500 BC. Mm, okay. And it's also one of the first foods European colonizers brought back to the old world. There are mentions of pumpkins in Europe as far back as 1536, and they were soon being grown regularly in England, where they were called pompions after the <laughs> French pom pom, a reference to their like round little shape. Uh, okay. <laughs> I love that. I think that's so cute. Okay. So if you know anything about British cuisine, you know, they love pies. Like Mm -hmm. they love hand pies, savory pies, sweet pies. Like if you could wrap it in dough and bake it, the Brits were like, fucking right. Yeah. I mean, just watch the great British baking show if you. Oh my God. (laughs) Yes. And they were already utilizing pumpkin in pies before the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Mm -hmm. Rock. Uh, It is almost certain that pumpkin was on the Thanksgiving table back in 1621 in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. In 1654, a ship captain from Massachusetts wrote that people prepared apples, pears, and quince tarts instead of their former pumpkin pies. Mm -hmm. But like, what were those former pumpkin pies? Mm. French cookbooks from around that time instructed cooks to boil the pumpkin in milk strain it and pour it into a crust which mm. is prob would probably give us something similar to right. the pumpkin pie that we know today um the english gentlewoman's companion suggested a pie filled with alternating layers of pumpkin and apple spiced rosemary sweet marjoram and thyme mm. A New England recipe said to fill a hollowed out pumpkin with spiced sweetened milk and just throw the whole thing in a fire. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And like cook it. 
That seems very American. Just throw it in the fire. Right. Just put it in a fire. The smooth custard version would finally come along later and started showing up in cookbooks around like 1796. Okay. Or so. Pumpkin pies were such a staple at Thanksgiving tables that the Connecticut town of Colchester postponed Thanksgiving in 1705 due to not having enough molasses available to make pumpkin pies. Mm, we just we can't do it without. Yeah. They were like, fuck it. If we can't have pumpkin pie. Thanksgiving canceled. Yeah. <laughs> Done. Done. Um, so. All of this to say, I know that there are a lot of complicated feelings to be had around Thanksgiving, and I think that that's absolutely valid. I also don't think that there's anything wrong with acknowledging the holidays like problematic past while also choosing to use this day as as a day to be grateful for what you have. Um, just going to say, just remember that while you're chowing down on your Thanksgiving meal today, which I hope all of you all are doing with loved ones, that most of the dishes on your table are the result of indigenous and black people and not those wacky buckled chewed white folks who are trying (laughs) to preserve their cultural authority, their cultural authority. Yeah. Yeah. And that is where our Thanksgiving menu came from. Oh, that's it. That's really interesting. Cause it's funny. Like, yeah, like I'm, I'm definitely someone it's the way I approach Christmas too. I Uh think is it's like I just enjoy it as like a family thing like I enjoy getting together with my family I like the food I think Mm -hmm. that's probably the way most people approach Thanksgiving these days is it's just uh it's like a few days off of work get together with family have your weird yeah I don't know I mean and and maybe they are I don't know that anybody is like you know what thank god for the pilgrims um (laughs) but it is something that is definitely still taught in our schools and our young ones are learning you know about the pilgrims and all that stuff and I wish that maybe that was a little bit more accurate well I'm, I'm I think I've mentioned it on the show before but there were these books that I had when I was a kid. And this is like very 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. They were called value tales. And they were supposed yes. to be like stories of history. Right. And like one was the story of the first Thanksgiving. And one was like the story of Christopher Columbus. And there, and and like looking back, it's like, wow, these this was purely propaganda. <laughs> this is this is straight up propaganda. Probably written by the New York Times. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that like most holidays are marketing ploys they were created by advertisers yeah well i mean valentine's day is essentially Mm -hmm. i mean even like as much as we love it halloween is is very much like you know obviously it goes back to but halloween right that's festivals and stuff that's the thing is that halloween has a basis in a legitimate like festival Mm -hmm. even christmas is everybody's like i don't know like December 25th, Christ was born, which is not true. Sorry. I just, I just (laughs) alienated our huge Christian fan base. Right. Um, (laughs) But like, also, you know, like December 25th was a pagan holiday. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. Well, right. I mean, so what I'm saying is like, yeah, Chris, some version of Christmas existed as a pagan holiday. And then as a Christian holiday, some version of Halloween existed, but the holidays that we know now, are right. like super just like about money making 
for yeah. big companies, yeah. which is, you know, it's fine. Like go have fun with it, but yeah, but I think know that that's what it is. Yeah. I was telling a friend recently that like one of the most interesting things about doing this podcast is finding out that like almost everything is rooted in white supremacy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, or, you or know, money and business somehow. Yeah. But, and even then it's like, you know, I mean, you look back at Thanksgiving and the reason we know about Thanksgiving, cause I'm certain there were a whole bunch of festivals and holidays and things that were being celebrated that just fell by the wayside. But when yeah. you think that it was like a group of pilgrim descendants that were like, lest everyone forget that we're the reason you all are here mm-hmm. and that you're on out your guests on our land. Mm-hmm. Let's just, you know, let's talk about the first Thanksgiving. Right. Well, I mean, even the term Native American back in the 1800s did not. Right. Mean, I mean, it meant like the original whites, you know, mm-hmm. the, the white Protestants didn't right. did not mean what we mean it to mean today. Yeah. And, you know, also remember that the like wasp power structure was creating this holiday to alienate and exert like cultural dominance over Jews, Italians, Chinese say, people. Over over my people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, it it's yeah, it's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna get some water. Okay. So let me just take a little break real fast. Okay. Welcome to our show. Welcome to our show. It's a good show. Did I show you this? Did I show you my, my personalized cup? Oh no. (laughs) So, okay. So I was in Texas a couple of weeks ago for my friend's 40th birthday. And she is the type of human being who at her birthday creates swag bags for her friends that she is invited to come and celebrate. (laughs) It's just incredible. It's just like, (laughs) that's that's pretty great. She's just an incredible human being. And we opened up like, (laughs) We like got there and like the get like the swag bags were all like lined up on the table and they were like per- amazing and perfect. And um the hashtag for her birthday celebration was Nacho Average 40th Fiesta. <laughs> um so the swag bags had uh there was like taco themed temporary tattoos. <laughs> Several of the guests ended up with like neck tattoos of like a taco um, (laughs) and that kind of a thing. Hand lotions that had been picked specifically for each individual person. So like mine was like sleep and relaxation. (laughs) <laughs> and it has like no. lavender and stuff in it. And then we all got these in they're like the insulated clear, like cool beverage cups. And it has like a, it's got like a screw on lid and a little straw and it has the hashtag on there. So hashtag nacho average 40th fiesta. And then my name on it. And the thing mm. is, is that they were all personalized in terms of colors so mine is like turquoise and coral but like another friend of ours got navy blue and yellow another friend got like golden burgundy so she really put that i mean i know the friend you're talking about and it's kind of not surprising it's not surprising at all (laughs) she's just like an incredibly generous amazing i just love her so much okay (laughs) Well, on that happy note, uh, yes. let's get into my <laughs> fucked up bullshit. So, let's do it. Um, Hold this, on. Yeah. Let me just, all my doors are locked and closed. <laughs> yeah, this is when you're going to want to. Okay. Hold, I'm like trying to figure out if I should go close. Let me clo- close the curtains a little bit. I'm sorry. Marketing. 
okay, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but I'm like facing all of the windows so I can see them. I'm not having to like look at them mm-hmm. in through the Zoom window. All of the doors are locked. I'm here. I can turn on my alarm at any moment. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, well, this story, this is this is uh, something I've been wanting to talk about for a while. And, and it occurred to me as I was doing the research, I was like, oh, this is like the perfect anti-Thanksgiving story. <laughs> hmm. Like it takes like everything we love about uh, Thanksgiving and just puts a fucked up horror twist on it. Okay, um, great. But also the other reason I was really excited to do this this week is so uh, there's a show that you and I are watching that you actually recommended to me. Yeah. That we're low key, high key obsessed with. Yeah. It's called yellow jackets. If you haven't heard of it. Oh my God. And uh, just for those of you who maybe aren't aware of the show, it's on Showtime. It's only in its second episode. Mm -hmm. It involves a group of high school soccer girls flying from their hometown in New Jersey to like a national competition. And then the plane crashes in the Canadian Rockies Mm -hmm. and things like go downhill from there. Um, Yeah. We will also say that like none of what Scotty has said is spoilers. Yeah. I'm trying to shown in like the trailer for it. Well, and one thing that is also not a spoiler, because if you know, anything about the show is it does involve cannibalism and like that mm-hmm. is something like i don't know where the show is going like Neither like i said I. it's only like uh yesterday's episode was episode two but i suspect they're gonna start they're gonna at least touch on uh what i'm talking about today okay so i'm gonna talk about the wendigo or not the wendigo as i keep trying well, to call it <laughs> inter- yeah. interestingly i i did watch a couple videos um uh-huh. about this and i've seen some different uh pronunciations so i've always known it as the wendigo mm-hmm. uh but also some people call it wendigo okay. so not wendigo like you like to say but wendigo Okay. And one person said Wendigo. So okay. I'm not sure what the proper, and I will say like this, this is a story that deals with some Native American mythology and I preemptively apologize for my pronunciation of things Okay. and do my best here. So we're going to talk about the Wendigo or Wendigo and the potentially, let's, let's say problematic diagnosis of Wendigo psychosis. Okay. So my sources for this are Wikipedia, uh, Legends of America, All That's Interesting, a YouTube video called What We Actually Know About the Wendigo Myth, an article from nativelanguages.com called Native American Languages, Wendigo, quite a bit from Murderpedia, and then an article from Gizmodo called Wendigo Psychosis, the probably fake disease that turns people into cannibals. Okay. Um, So let's dive into it. So I was a little bit shocked when we were talking about it recently that you had never heard of this before. I haven't. Have you? Because this is a pretty well-known Native American myth. Now, it's not particularly, I don't think it particularly has anything to do with like, you know, the the Puebloan and Navajo cultures that were nearby. Right. Uh, This is very much Northern, you know, Canada, New England, the Northern Plains. Um, And that's very important to kind of the origins of this myth. So I think when you say Wendigo, People tend to think monster, snow, deer antlers. Um, like mm. this is the Im- this is the cultural images that people have okay. in their head. Like some creature that comes out of the snow. It's got antlers like a deer. Okay. Um, in fact, I think the movie Antlers, which is out now, I'm not sure about this. Uh, it's a new Guillermo del Toro film. Uh, I think is actually about the Wendigo. 
Oh, okay. That image is kind of incorrect. That that's more of a pop culture image. So, so we're going to get into the actual myth before I get into the discussion of uh, Wendigo psychosis. As you said, just a sort of a blanket warning here. This is very much a close notes version. Also, like I tried to synthesize like a lot of these kind of mythological demons or creatures, monsters. It kind of depends on the specific region, like the specific particulars of the legend very a lot from place to place. So I'm going to try and touch on some of the variations, but I'm sure I'm not getting all of them. So like I said, it is very much a Cliff's Notes version. Okay. Um, So the Wendigo or Wendigo is a mythological creature or evil spirit that comes from various Native American and First Nations tribes, particularly tribes of the Algonquin people or Algonquin speaking, Algonquin languages people. So we're talking about the Ojibwe, the Cree. Most of the stories I read come from either Ojibwe or Cree sources. Okay. The English word Wendigo, which is spelled W-E-N-D-I-G-O, comes from an Ojibwe word, which is Windigo, W-I-I-N-D-I-G-O-O. In the Cree language, it's known as the Wetiko. And then mm-hmm. there are other similar words in various Algonquin speaking peoples. Okay. So it's also known as the Wendiga, the Ouijigo, the Wintigo, or the Winstigo. And then there was a whole bunch more. The Rufflet translation essentially means, quote, the evil spirit that devours mankind. Ooh. Yeah. I read somewhere that the original word may actually come from a proto-Algonquin word, which meant owl. Hmm. Um and I'll talk about that a little bit because that kind of pops up in the description. Okay. So like I said, it's very much a Northern, like when we talk about North America, we're talking like North America, <laughs> like North. Canada, Maine. Yeah. Most of the mythologies are rooted in like the Northern Great Plains or the East Coast regions. But there is a parallel creature that's known to the Athabascan people of the Pacific Coast in British Columbia. So and going up into like Alaska, mm. it's called the Wetchuge. Okay. Um, So like the Wendigo, the Wechuge is a cannibalistic creature. It's said to be a person who has been possessed by and, quote, overwhelmed by the power of gigantic spirit animals, which then make the person, the possessed person, quote, too strong. Um, It is an evil spirit. The the big difference between the Wendigo and the Wechuge is that the Wechuge is also seen, even though it is an evil spirit, it is seen to have this, like, ancestral knowledge that you can tap into as well okay so it's not just a monster ah okay now one thing that is in common with the wendigo and the wechuge is that this possession is said to occur most often when certain taboos are broken so like some of the taboos for the wechuge would include like taking a photo with a flash or listening to music made with stretched string or hide like a guitar Um, oh wow okay or eating people (laughs) <laughs> these myths are very I'm sorry <laughs> yeah you play guitar wow. or eat a person you might yeah <laughs> wow okay that is a that is a big leap right in in, in to my own sensibilities right right well and i think there are definitely more these were just some of the taboos i saw listed but the big central taboo that the Wendigo and Wachuge myths mm-hmm. deal with is the taboo around cannibalism. And I don't think it's an accident that these mythologies are rooted in like the far northern climes where survival cannibalism yeah. in wintertime famines yeah. it was like a distinct possibility. A probability. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. 
I mean, particularly like for like the dumb settlers who got stuck on Donner Pass, you know, although that's more California. But so like I said, uh, the Wendigo is an evil spirit. It possesses human beings. It causes them to be insatiably hungry Hmm. and then to go on and murder and eat people. So like I said, it's, it's usually depicted in pop culture as this monster with like a deer head and antlers. And there are some Native American myths that depict the Wendigo as having the head of a stag. So that may be some of the root of it. But I think I read a lot of places saying like they really think like this pop cultural thing was kind of like a European interpretation of what they were hearing about the Wendigo myth because it's generally depicted as some sort of like hybrid creature. And so they think these were Europeans bringing in like werewolf myths. And then kind of interpreting the Wendigo stories through that lens. Now, there's a few different descriptions I'm going to read of it. So in the original Algonquin legends, describe it as, quote, a giant with a heart of ice. Sometimes it is thought to be entirely made of ice. Its body is skeletal and deformed with missing lips and toes, which definitely suggests, like, fears around frostbite and things like Mm. that. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. I the, see that. O- the Ojibwe description is, quote, it was a large creature as tall as a tree with a lipless mouth and jagged teeth. Its breath was a strange hiss, its footprints full of blood, and it ate any man, woman, or child who ventured into its territory. Mm. And those were the lucky ones. Sometimes the Wendigo chose to possess a person instead, and then the luckless individual became a Wendigo himself hunting down those he had once loved and feasting upon their flesh. So if you're eaten by a Wendigo, you become a Wendigo? Not exactly. Okay. So, and like I said, this is where like the variations exist. Like some of these mythologies depict the Wendigo more as a monster Uh that can then turn you into a Wendigo. Okay. And like, you know, you start off being insatiably hungry and then you become a cannibal and then you sort of transform over time. Okay. into a wendigo and then some of the myths seem to be more like no it's a spirit that possesses you mm. okay. or some combination of a two a guy named basil johnston who's an ojibwe scholar in ontario he describes the wendigo like this and this was the most common quote that i saw in like every article it says the wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets, the Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Unclean and suffering from the superation of the flesh, the Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decaying decomposition of Mm. death and corruption. So the descriptions really sound very zombie-like in some yeah, ways, yeah. but there are, it's, I'll get into it. It's not exactly analogous to a zombie okay, or what we think of as a zombie. Things that seem to be pretty common across the mythologies is that the Wendigo is thin to the point of emaciation and that they are giants, that they are much taller than a normal person. So in the mythologies from the Ojibwe, Cree, Naskapi, and Inu people, it said that the reason they become giants is because whenever a Wendigo consumes a person, it actually will grow in proportion to the meal. And this means that it can never be full which is what leads to this insatiable hunger. Wow. Uh, so like they'll, they'll describe it as being impossibly tall and impossibly thin, sometimes 12 to 15 feet tall. It definitely makes me think of like Slender Man. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was kind of thinking know? that too. Yeah. 
So I like that's my image of the Wendigo is much more like Slender Man without the suit, I think. <laughs> yeah. Other descriptions uh, describe it as having sallow yellowish skin, glowing eyes, fangs, and overly long tongues, which is gross. They're often described as being corpse-like with dead gray skin that's like literally just like sloughing off of the bones. Ooh, they're a mess. What a mess. Yeah. And then an ethno-historian named Nathan Carlson said that the Wendigo is supposed to have massive eyes like an owl, which goes back to that proto-Algonquin potential mm-hmm. root of the word being owl. Also, that definitely makes me think Mothman. So, Oh, God. Is there a connection? I don't is know. Is there a connection? Yes. <laughs> uh, weirdest thing, believability scale? Yes. Um, <laughs> now, like I said, they're not zombies. Because they're not mindless. They're not like mindless eating machines. When someone is possessed by the Wendigo, they don't lose their powers of like thought or speech. Mm -hmm. And they're actually said to then use cunning to lure people. Mm. Um, And they're sometimes uh, said to like taunt or threaten their victims before they eat them. So one Wendigo story, this is related by a woman named Lottie. This is going to be one of those words I might get or names, I might get the pronunciation wrong. Lottie Chicagua Marsden. So she's an ethnographer of the Rama First Nation people. Okay. She says, this is a story she tells. One time long ago, a big Wendigo stole an Indian boy, but the boy was too thin. So the Wendigo didn't eat him up right away, but he traveled with the Indian boy waiting for him till he'd get fat. The Wendigo had a knife and he cut the boy in the hand to see if he was fat enough to eat, but the boy didn't get fat. They traveled too much. One day they came to an Indian village and the Wendigo sent the boy to the Indian village to get some things for him to eat. He just gave the boy so much time to go there and back. The boy told the Indians that the Wendigo was near them and showed them his hands where the Wendigo had cut him to see if he was fat enough to eat. They heard the Wendigo calling the boy. He said to the boy, hurry up, don't tell lies to those Indians. All of these Indians went to where the Wendigo was and cut off his legs. Then went back again to see if he was dead. He wasn't dead. He was eating the juice from the inside of the bones of his legs that were cut off. The Indians asked the Wendigo if there was any fat on them. He said, you bet there is. I have eaten lots of Indians. No wonder they are fat. The Indians then killed him and cut him to pieces. This is the end of this giant Wendigo. What? Yeah. The... Oh, <laughs> right so uh not a particularly pleasant creature. lovely bedtime story right <laughs> tell your kids but it's like i mean it's like the grimm's fairy tales when you read the original grimm's fairy tales they're fucking awful <laughs> yep so like another thing you know the different legends will say different things about the speed and agility of the wendigo so some say that he's like super fast can endure walking for long periods even in the harsh winter but then others say he walks in a more like haggard manner as if he's like crumbling to pieces Mm. so more like what you think of like a zombie walk Mm -hmm. but like i said he doesn't necessarily chase you down he uses cunning to lure you to their death one thing uh some of the legends say is that it's an expert mimic of human voices And that will lure people away from the rest of the tribe while it will then attack and eat them. So if you remember the Iroquois myth of the Akkan that I talked about in the Black Eyed Children episode, this was the the negative life force, the quote, evil-minded one that can possess people, specifically children, and then turn Mm -hmm. them into like slaves. Mm -hmm. Like it's a very similar story where it's like it will lure the kids into the woods, possess them, and then send them back to the tribe. 
So like I said, most legends say that one becomes possessed by the Wendigo when this taboo of cannibalism is broken. And like I said, this probably accounts for the location of these myths because this was definitely like a risk in these climates. Yeah. But other versions say that any descent into greed or gluttony can invite the spirit of the Wendigo. So it's not just cannibalism, but just greed, gluttony, avarice. In that sense, you could see it as like a parable, like sort of extolling the virtues of like altruism and cooperation. Like, you know, work with people and and be willing to share or else you'll turn into the Wendigo. Jeez, okay. Once uh, someone is possessed by a Wendigo, they're considered cursed to wander the land, eternally looking to satiate this hunger for human flesh. Once it has consumed everything that it can, it'll starve to death. Um, Mm. I read somewhere that cryptozoologists really like to make this claim that the Wendigo is real and that actually the Wendigo is like a cultural memory of Bigfoot, like people having Bigfoot sightings. I think that's a stretch. (laughs) Like there's nothing about Bigfoot that sounds like the Wendigo to me. Well, and if you deal with, I think their name is Warren. Oh, I think yeah. the last name with the woman who, this is the people who the Conjuring movies are right. about. <laughs> if you read their book, she had a whole conversation with Bigfoot and he was just <laughs> really sad because his Bigfoot wife had died. That's right. So that does not match up with the mythology we are hearing. Yeah, here. I think I would trust the Warrens in this case. <laughs> <laughs> We need Uh, t-shirts that just say that. Trust the Warrens. (laughs) Everybody's like, what? Well, again, I think the reason why, like, I mean, I'm not going to get into the whole Bigfoot, whether Bigfoot's real. But, like, let's just assume for a minute that Bigfoot is real. Sure, why not? The only reason you would equate a Wendigo to Bigfoot is you're taking on this, like, European interpretation of the Wendigo as a monster. Mm, Right, 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 right. Like I said, most of the, other than this few descriptions that say it has the head of a stag, most descriptions of the Wendigo is more this, like, gaunt human type figure. Yeah. You You could also say that there are similarities to the vampire myth. Often Wendigos would be blamed for people disappearing. Like if people were traveling through these northern climes and then would disappear, people would say, oh, when the Wendigo got them. Okay. Even though it was probably, if they were in New Mexico, it was probably Charles Kennedy got them. But <laughs> And then also people dying of like wasting diseases, which is right. very much ties to like vamp- you know, vampire myths. Mm-hmm. You know, people dying of tuberculosis or cancer, diseases that weren't understood. It is often assumed that like stories of the Wendigo are allegories for like the violent and primitive nature of just all humans, including the people telling the stories. Mm. But I did read, I can't remember in which article, but there is some evidence that actually the myth is very deeply rooted in colonialism and very deeply rooted in the violence that it was actually inflicted on Native American and First Nations people by Europeans. And so there are some anthropologists say that there's really no evidence that the Wendigo myth existed before European contact. Right. Which makes sense. Greed like a never-ending hunger mm-hmm. yeah that, that makes sense right this takes us to the idea of wendigo psychosis oh okay right we were gonna so, talk about that yeah two big um warnings here one is this whole idea of wendigo psychosis is very disputed it's very mm. controversial and it's largely probably rooted in racism so just okay. want to put that caveat out there. Okay. Uh, the other thing is just general content warning. Uh, this is going to get kind of gross. So, okay. I know. mean, you already talked about a 
creature eating its own leg and sucking the marrow out. So I'm that's excited true. to see where this will go. Yeah, no, that's well, because I get a little more. <laughs> we, can o- we can only go up from here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we're going to talk about stuff that happened to some real people. So Okay, got it. So one of the first discussions of something that like would resemble what would later become known as Wendigo psychosis came from a book. I think it was a book or maybe a series of books called the Jesuit relations. So these were chronicles of the Jesuit missions in quote, new France, which Mm. is essentially the French colonial territory that went from like Northern Quebec down to Louisiana. Right. Um, So these Jesuit relations books are from, the 1600s in this quote specifically from 1661 it says uh, and i assume these are like missionaries or monks or somebody writing this stuff it says what caused us greater concern was the news that met us upon entering the lake namely that the men deputed by our conductor for the purpose of summoning the nations to the north sea and assigning them a rendezvous where they were to await our coming had met their death the previous winter in a very strange manner Those poor men, according to the report given us, were seized with an ailment unknown to us, but not very unusual among the people we are seeking. They are afflicted with neither lunacy, hypochondria, nor frenzy, but have a combination of all these species of disease, which affects their imaginations and causes them a more than canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women, children, and even upon men like veritable werewolves and devour them voraciously without being able to appease or glut their appetite, Mm. ever seeking fresh prey, and the more greedily, the more they eat. This ailment attacked our deputies, and as death is the sole remedy among those people for checking such acts of murder, they were slain in order to stay the course of their madness. Now, what's interesting about this quote this was just from Wikipedia, mm-hmm. um, is that when he's talking about their deputies, I'm not sure if he's talking about Native American people or if he's mm-hmm. talking about when he says our deputies, if these were other like Christian missionaries that have been sent out. And right. Then That's not clear to me. Okay. Um, but generally, this is where like it gets a little problematic. Wendigo psychosis was seen as an affliction that specifically affected people of Native American descent and cultural heritage. They, in, in the 10th revision of the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems, and I mm-hmm. could not find the date for this 10th revision, so I don't know how recent this is, okay. but they called it a, quote, culture-specific disorder. So it's reportedly a localized mental illness centered on Northeastern American, Native American tribes. Mm -hmm. The symptoms are described as including depression, homicidal and or suicidal thoughts, and a delusional and compulsive wish to eat human flesh. Another description I saw of Wendigo psychosis said that the people who are afflicted with it are simultaneously terrified of becoming a Wendigo, while at the same time finding themselves craving human flesh i wonder like to me that sounds like a almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy it's like that thing of like when you're standing on the edge of like a tall building or a cliff and you have that thought like i could jump and then all of a sudden you have almost the urge to like like thinking it kind of creates the urge Mm -hmm. so if there's truth to this like that that's interesting and very specific to this quote wendigo psychosis this book goes on to say that, quote, some controversial news studies questioned the syndrome's legitimacy, claiming cases were actually a product of hostile accusations invented 
to justify the victim's ostracism or execution. So this means that people could have been saying that person's got Wendigo psychosis. We need to kill them. Give them the boot. Yeah. Give them the boot. Mainly because we want to take their land or whatever, you know. Uh. So that's where like all of this big, huge grains of salt for all of this. Right. Um, But there's, uh, I'm going to tell one specific story that is generally held up as the, like, this is the famous case of Wendigo psychosis. Okay. So this came from the winter of 1878. It involved a Plains Cree man who uh, was known as Swift Runner. He was a fur trapper in Alberta, Canada. He was described as being a very big man, uh, well over six feet tall. He was very well liked. I read, well, I should say I read two different articles. This is from Murderpedia. Okay. And the descriptions of him vary in terms of how well-liked he was. So in the first article I read, it said he was very well-liked. He was uh, well-educated. He was married with six children. He was considered like very mild-mannered and considerate. He was known to be like very devoted to his wife and children. And he was known to the white settlers in the area because he would come down and trade with them at the Hudson's Bay Company. Like they had like a trading post. And he had even worked as a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police, which had only been created like five years earlier. Um, So we're talking the Wild West, but Canadian Wild West. Right. So like I said, one of the articles talked about how well-liked he was, but then in another article, they quote a police officer kind of after the fact saying he, quote, was, or he had as ugly and evil looking a face as I have ever seen. Rude. Okay. That seems like some like after the fact racism to me, probably. Yeah. Um, the second article uh, also quoted a contemporaneous newspaper story that said, even though he had been very well liked, quote, his contact with white men, however, had ruined him. The, this, quote, ruination consisted of alcoholism. Uh, he was known as like uh, very fond of whiskey and actually was like a whiskey smuggler okay. in the region and probably exacerbated by the alcoholism he had an increasingly violent temper to the point where he became known as the quote terror to the whole region eventually even his tribe which was the Cree people the plains Cree people actually turned him out of the tribe and forced him and his family to go live alone in the woods oh shoot okay so during the winter of 1878 you know colonial pressure hard winter all sorts of things were essentially creating a famine amongst the Cree people okay and swift runner and his family they were you know suffering along with everyone else and i'm sorry where is this happening so it's in alberta Canada. okay right okay so at the end of the winter swift runner came to the hudson bay company post he was alone. And the people asked, well, where's where's your family? And I think, well, I, I saw a couple different things. One, one thing said that he came to this Hudson Bay Company post. Another said he came back into like where the Cree people were living. But either way, he was alone. He did not have his wife and kids. His in-laws were asking him, where is everybody? And at first he kind of didn't really have a good explanation. And then he said, well, um, our oldest son starved to death. So then my wife killed herself and then all the other kids died of starvation. And that was the story he was telling, but it's like, things weren't really adding up. Yeah. One thing was that Swift runner himself did not look undernourished. And they're like, well, if everyone starved to death, how come you're like, you look fine. Mm. So eventually his in-laws 
um, his wife's family went to this Northwest Mounted Police and, and kind of said, we need you guys to go up to where he lives and check into this. So the Northwest Mounted Police, they assigned an inspector a guy named Severe Gagnon, Gagnon uh, so I'm guessing a French fella. He took Swift Runner and then he and a small party of police went up to Swift Runner's camp. Okay. Once they arrived, Swift Runner pointed to a small grave and he said, that's where my eldest son is buried. He's, he was the first one to die. He died of starvation. So the police were like, we're going to check this out. They dug up the body. They found the skeleton. Mm-hmm. Everything looked like the bones were undisturbed. Seemed like to go along with what Swift Runner was saying. But then as they started looking around the camp for the other graves, they just started finding scattered human bones just kind of everywhere. So when the police finally found a skull, that was clearly an adult's skull. They brought it to Swift Runner and they said, yeah, that's my wife. He finally confessed to what happened. So this is the story he told according to Murderpedia. He told them that after his eldest son's death, he started to become haunted by dreams. In those dreams, the Wendigo was calling on him okay it's calling on him to consume the people around him to kill and eat his family essentially he said that he tried to fight off the spirit but it eventually took control after which point swift runner murdered and ate his wife (sighs) after that he said that the wendigo then went to one of his sons i think the next oldest son and infected or possessed his son and made him kill the youngest son Okay. And there were details that I'm not going to go into because nobody needs to hear them, but they were pretty upsetting. Okay. Tell me later. Yeah, I will. Okay. In the end, Swift Runner confessed to having killed and eaten his entire family. He also, I read somewhere he also had killed his, either his mother or his mother-in-law. I'm not sure. Like I saw conflicting things on that and then complained that she was quote too tough. Rude. (laughs) You don't get to eat somebody and then be like, oh, honestly, she was a little gamey. She was a little gamey. Yeah, exactly. Now, the thing is, this wasn't, you couldn't chalk this up to survival cannibalism because like it was a hard winter, but the Hudson Bay Company trading post was only 25 miles away. It was like accessible to him this suggests that this was a form of psychosis Mm. and this is where a lot of the story like whenever you google wendigo psychosis Mm -hmm. you're gonna find the story of swift runner like that's that's the main story okay i read somewhere that it was also rumored that he had actually developed his taste for human flesh earlier when he'd been forced to eat the remains of a starved hunting partner like he and his hunting partner had gotten stranded somewhere. The hunting partner starved to death. And to save himself, he had to eat mm-hmm. his friend. Mm-hmm. So this would go along with the Wendigo myth that he had like broken the taboo of cannibalism and allowed the Wendigo in. Right, right, right. He was ultimately executed at Fort Saskatchewan. Before his execution, he declined to meet with a priest saying, quote, the white man has ruined me. I don't think their God could amount to much. So... I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't blame him for that. And then another famous story involving Wendigo psychosis was an OG Cree chief and medicine man named Jack Fiddler. Okay. Um, he was renowned for being able to drive out Wendigos and to defeat Wendigos. But to do this, he was apparently killing people who had been afflicted with this quote Wendigo psychosis. So as a result, he and his brother who I guess was working with him, were arrested in 1907 by the Canadian police and tried for homicide. And I think Jack Fiddler ended up killing himself in jail before he could go to trial, but his brother ended up serving 
life in prison. Wow. So like I said, those those are the stories people point to when they talk about Wendigo psychosis, but it's definitely a matter of debate. Some people call it a hoax. Some people say it's like a racially tinged misinterpretation of these myths being conflated mm-hmm. with like real life instances of cannibalism or mental illness. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of eyewitnesses to the phenomenon. Should be said the people at the time, like both Native Americans and white people believed in Wendigo psychosis. Okay. This is like sort of the mid to late 1800s into the sort of early 20th century. But the thing was like, and it's something that definitely caught like the eye of anthropologists because it was this like culturally specific mental illness. Right. And so they're trying to figure out what could trigger this within these very specific native American groups in this very, these very specific regions. Right. And so these anthropologists, mostly white people okay. uh, started going in and basically like early thoughts was like, well, their belief in the Wendigo is so strong that they create this psychosis in themselves. Okay. There's also some people have said that this, again, is a remnant of colonialism, that, you know, the colonial pressures on Native American peoples had created, you know, extreme conditions of famine, starvation, Mm. and that this was an outgrowth of that. Okay. But the thing is, when you really look at, like, the symptoms of Wendigo psychosis, they're very varied from person to person. Mm -hmm. They seem to really be, like, a mixture of a lot of already known mental illnesses and compulsions. Mm -hmm. Um, It's only unique because of the specific cultural context. Okay. And it's not like these Algonquin people were the only people who were occasionally eating humans. Like cannibalism exists everywhere. Right. (laughs) has existed everywhere. Yeah. Like go back to Sonny Bean, you know. Um, yeah. Go back to the Donner Party. I mean, you know, cannibalism, there's ritual cannibalism in different mm-hmm. societies. There's wartime cannibalism. Right. There's survival cannibalism. And there is cannibalism that is driven by mental illness. But that's not something that is necessarily unique. But it was this belief that it's the Wendigo that made it a, quote, unique psychosis. But I mean, I think like a schizophrenic who believes they're possessed by the devil, like, is this a specific mental illness only afflicting Christians? No, it's schizophrenia. It's just, it's being interpreted to whoever the sufferers, like their culture. Their cultural lens. Yeah. Lens, right. So my thought about it is, I think there are enough stories that there was clearly something going on, but I think it is more, these are more common mental illnesses that are then going through a very specific cultural lens. So I I don't think it's really accurate to say that Wendigo psychosis is an actual thing. Right. It also like, it was noticed by all these ethnographers and anthropologists, but then kind of started to go away. Like people don't get Wendigo psychosis anymore. And it started to go away when the Native American peoples of this region started adopting the like less rural, more sedentary lifestyles of the white colonizers. Huh. Okay. Um, so it was something that like by the time anyone actually noticed that it was a thing, it was starting to not be a thing anymore. Wow. So there's a medical anthropologist named James B. Waldron. He wrote a 2004 book called Revenge of the Wendigo. And he said, here's a quote from him. And he references, by the way, another article that I was not able to find. So Mm. I don't know 
exactly what he's talking about, but he says, no actual cases of Wendigo psychosis have ever been studied. And Lou Marano's scathing critique in 1985 should have killed off the cannibal monster within the psychiatric annals. The Wendigo, however, continues to seek revenge for this attempted scholarly execution by periodically duping unsuspecting passersby, like psychiatrists, into believing that Wendigo psychosis not only exists, but that a psychiatrist could conceivably encounter a patient suffering from this disorder in his or her practice today. Wendigo psychosis may well be the most perfect example of the construction of an aboriginal mental disorder by the scholarly profession, hmm. by the scholarly professions, and its persistence dramatically underscores how constructions of the aboriginal by these professions have, like Frankenstein's monster, taken on a life of their own. Oof. And then from that Gizmodo article, they say, the fact that the moment anyone looked for Wendigo psychosis, it vanished, seemed significant to quite a few skeptics. Plenty of people heard stories of such a psychosis, but few seemed to meet a Wendigo sufferer in the flesh. One of the few people to actually see a person with the psychosis was a missionary named J.E. Sandon, who traveled around in the early 1900s. The woman who was supposedly, quote, possessed, seemed rational, had no desire to eat human flesh, and only wanted to kill strangers because she feared they would hurt her she's okay, surrounded that's not <laughs> exactly <laughs> so she's not the same thing she surrounded herself with her close family and avoided new people in order to avoid the temptation to kill them this is one of the most well-documented cases and doesn't resemble the psychosis at all yeah and that is the story of the Wendigo myth and the probably not true story of Wendigo psychosis. Interesting. Yeah. But so you see like why I think yellow jackets may be starting mm. to tiptoe into this territory. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Guys, you got to go watch it. It's it's real good. It's real good. It is like like a third high school drama Mm-hmm. A third crazy survival story and a third something else, which Scotty and I, that's TBD. Like, yeah. we, in only the second episode, we're not sure where it's going yet. Right. Well, it's like um, high school survival or high school like drama. Right. Uh, just sort of like almost like mean girls or something. Right. A bunch um, of girls on a soccer team. They're champions. They're like the best. They're on their way to right. like, they're on their way to nationals. Yeah. So they have like, one state and regionals and all that stuff. Right. And then like a third, like middle-aged sort of domestic drama. Ugh. And then like and just, this element of this other, like you said, that is. Yeah. And it's got Juliette Lewis and Christina Ricci and Melanie. Melanie Linsky. Yes. And I'm not sure of the woman who plays Thaisa. Oh, um, I yeah. What is her name? I feel terrible now. because I'm going to look she's, it up. She's real good. She's not as prominent on the show yet, but I think her story is going to get. Yeah. I'm real, yeah. real. Inter- I'm interested to see where the whole thing is going. Yeah. And so uh, just so you guys, again, this is not a spoiler because you get this from the trailer, but it kind of like part of the story is told in 1996 when they're teenagers. Mm. And then Ugh. part of the story is told like in 2021 uh, with certain survivors, kind yes. of like the effects of this experience on them. Also great. Part of the reason it's great too, is because part of it is set in 1996. Like the soundtrack is just like, Oh, the musical choices are perfect. The fact that like, was it, I think it was like the cold open that they did on this one ended with the like, everything 
looks fine yeah. song. And I was like, <gasps> yeah. Oh my God. It brought and, back like so many feelings. And I don't want to get into it, but like this cold open for the, cause you had, you had mentioned like we had both loved the pilot, but we were yes. like, are they going to be able to sustain this? Mm-hmm. Like is, is, episode two going to be like a, a disappointment but that cold this cold open for episode two was maybe my favorite cold open of all time oh like the way it ends it's fucked up and amazing yes um, and, and, yeah. it's, and it is interesting because like a lot of reviews we we also talked about this earlier a lot of the reviews are comparing it to lost but it's way weirder and way darker than Lost. it's it's okay so uh the woman who plays Thaisa is named tawny cypress that's right excellent i and, wanted to say gina torres but no she was on uh fire but has it kind of looks similar has a yeah. gina torres feel right okay what were you just saying you're talking about the cold open well and just just that it's like <laughs> yeah i comparing can, it to lost i can that's see why is. but that's like the easy comparison to make it is right much. and of course it's being compared to um the fucking book lord of the lord flies. of the flies but even that yes. it's even a lot weirder than that i think so um okay hold on i need to i need to look at this because i need to figure out what the name of this show was so give me give me a moment mm-hmm. keep holding Vamping. keep holding that's Vamping. not who i'm looking for <laughs> <laughs> welcome to our show welcome to So years ago, the show Misfits came mm-hmm. out. I don't. Did you ever watch Misfits? No, I've, I think I've heard of it. So I don't know if it was a British so, show or what, but or like a BBC show or what it was. But essentially, I think it's like five or six misfits. They're young people, young kids who have essentially, for various reasons, gotten busted for stuff, and basically end up doing like community service work. Mm. And one day as they're doing their community service work, this big like electrical storm comes. Um, This is from memory. So if I'm getting this wrong again, don't at me. (laughs) I think this like electrical storm comes and something happens and they sort of get like stuck in it. And I don't, I can't remember if like they all collectively get struck by lightning or something happens, but this thing happens and they get powers Mm. like supernatural powers okay. from this. So like one, and the, the supernatural powers all, I think sort of have something to do with their own personalities. Mm-hmm. So I think if, again, if I'm remembering correctly, the kind of outcast kid, like has the power of invisibility, that kind of yeah. stuff. Anyways, my ex-boyfriend, we, th- the majority of the friendship that we have now post relationship is sort of based in TV and movies and pop culture. Mm-hmm. And he had told me at the time, he was like, Hey, you, You've got to watch Misfits. Misfits is the show that when Heroes goes to sleep at night, it dreams of being <laughs> Misfits. Yeah. And I kind of feel a little bit that way about Lost and Yellow Jackets. That Yellow yeah. Jackets is the show that Lost dreams about being when it goes to sleep at night. Right. Because yeah, it's because it's, it's a it's weird. <laughs> it's weird. It's real dark. It's it's not settling. It's not quite horror, or at least not yet, but it's definitely touching on horror. And like yeah. I say, I, I think it's going to, I mean, because like they're stranded in Northern Canada, in the, mm-hmm. the Canadian Rockies, like it's going to have to touch on the Wendigo. 
in some way because yeah. it's just so like specific you know the the region is so specific but yeah i'm really excited to see where the show goes it's, it's my too. favorite show on television right now yeah yeah i it's like and it sucks because it's on showtime so this is what i'm gonna say if you have amazon prime and like if you don't have showtime on your own cable stuff or whatever uh, and you have amazon prime wait until the entire series is out and then get the free week trial of showtime and, and then just, just binge, binge it. it yeah i almost wish like i'm unfortunately i'm like in it now so i can't do that. yeah i can't i can't walk away from it for a couple of months and then yeah. come back to it because I'm just like, well, I guess I'm just paying like the 1099 extra right. a month for Showtime because yeah, I'm I'm invested now. But it is it's probably the show that I am most excited about that has come along recently because there's <laughs> plenty of other stuff that have been like, yeah, I'm I'm watching it, but you know whatever. This right. is I'm like like Scotty texted me last night, literally in the middle of the night, and was like, the new episode of Yellow Jackets <laughs> is up, and I, I woke up this morning and found it, and I was like, oh fuck, yeah. uh, like trying to watch it as I was like getting ready to take my dog out for a walk. <laughs> and yeah. then I was just like, I can't, I'm going to get sucked into this episode. I have to put it down. Yeah. 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 It's, it's well, and, and the teenage actors are pretty great. I don't know any of their names, but then the adult counterpart actors, like it's like, just it's Juliette Lewis. It's Christina Ricci. Yes. You know, and, and like particularly Juliette Lewis, Christina Ricci and Melanie Linsky are all kind of known for like playing nineties misfits. Yeah. Like, teenage so like it's just sort of perfect casting as adults yeah and Um, it's lovely to see Juliet lewis working i think she's always a delight um is she a scientologist yeah she's a scientologist that sucks (laughs) but her work is fantastic christina ricci is fantastic melanie linsky is fantastic yeah and then god forgetting her name again a tawny cypress like her character i don't know where they're going with that character yet but i I would say like first episode she the adult version of her was like one of the least interesting characters but they're setting some stuff up with her in this new episode that makes me think yeah. she's going to be an interesting character. There was, did you see the whole thing about like, cause I can't remember what her, what is, hold on. Let me look and see what her full character's name is. Oh, it just says IMDb just says Taisa, but mm-hmm. she's like running for public office as an adult. Mm-hmm. And it's the whole thing like Taisa so-and-so will lead you out of the force. And I was like, yeah. really? Yeah. I was like leaning really? into Really? <laughs> yeah. Like your campaign team was like, you know what? Let's, Let's, let's lean into that. I mean, if that's like part of, yeah, because it's like obviously set up on the show that everyone, like they were famous for having survived to this plane crash and yeah, everything. So it's like, if that's what you're known for, I guess that's what you have to do. You can't like pretend. I guess. Otherwise. <laughs> I guess, but like, I don't know. I want to talk about it. Yeah. 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 Um, I just want to mention uh, before we're done. Uh, yes. Like I said, the Wendigo is very popular in pop culture specifically mm-hmm. like horror fiction and movies so i just want to mention if, if you are interested these are not gonna necessarily be super accurate depictions of the myth okay. but just places where it's popped up stephen king's pet cemetery um, oh yep okay a very famous horror story by algernon blackwood called the wendigo which Ooh. is probably partly what popularized the myth Okay. There's a movie from the 90s, 1999, called Ravenous, which stars uh, Guy Pierce 
and whatever the guy's name is who's in train spotting i'm forgetting his name okay um, scottish actor and then okay. uh really like not very well known outside of horror circles but probably one of the best depictions of the wendigo i would say on film is a movie called wendigo from 2001 by a filmmaker named larry fessenden okay. who's very much a like very well respected cult horror director ah okay um, it's a very like weird slow burn kind of take on it like mm. less of a monster movie more of a psychological horror thing so very cool um yeah but that is uh one of my favorite sort of creepy monstery type myths nice uh, in a nutshell so nice fantastic well you know what scotty i'm grateful for you i'm also <laughs> grateful for you all who are listening to us uh we're gonna wrap it up here right unless you have anything else to say scotty I mean, now I feel like I have to say, oh, I'm grateful for you too. You don't have to say that you're grateful for me. I know that you are. Um, uh, But we're grateful for you guys who sit there and listen to us uh, every couple, every two weeks when we come out with an episode. And we love uh, when you guys send us text messages and comment on the posts and stuff about it. It's, we always get a really big kick out of that. So have have a good Thanksgiving. Remember what's important. Stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.